Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Juneteenth is now a federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the U.S. But Juneteenth isn't the only holiday that recognizes the legal end of slavery in the Americas. August 1st is Emancipation Day in many English-speaking countries in the Caribbean. Today where we live, we talk about this history. Our state has a sizable population of people of West Indian descent. Is your family from the West Indies? Is Emancipation Day a holiday your family talks about? If you're a member of the West Indian community in Connecticut, we want to hear from you. What's your family story? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page and find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, some of the show topics you hear on Where We Live come from our listeners. And you can always pitch an idea by emailing me, lucy at ctpublic.org. My first guest pitched today's show, and I'm happy to welcome Sandra Tate-Eady. She's on Zoom with us. She's a family historian, a certified teacher, and an independent historical researcher. And she's a Connecticut resident, originally from Barbados. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Lucy. Thanks, Connecticut Public Television, for having me this morning. And with us as well as Fiona Vernal, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at UConn, and she's Jamaican-American. Fiona, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, your colleague, Dexter Gabriel, is also with us. He's Assistant Professor of History and Africana Studies at UConn. And Dexter, you have a connection as well. Where's your family from? Uh, hello, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my family's from Trinidad and Tobago. Well, this should be a really interesting hour uh, talking about uh, the West uh, Indians living in our state, and and it goes back for for some time. So, uh, Sandra, I'll start with you. I mentioned your family is from Barbados. Tell us about uh, the history of your family story and how you ended up in Connecticut. Um, So, Tess, I'm actually from Barbados also. I was born, um, I came to Connecticut at the age of, of 12. And um, when I came to when I came to Connecticut, um, there was no. um, Are you hearing me? Okay. Yes, Sandra, go ahead. Yes. So I came to Connecticut at the age of 12 from Barbados as an immigrant um, and attended Canelli Elementary School. And we lived in the south end of Hartford. There were hardly any other West Indian um, children in the area. And so for a long time, I didn't feel seen. And then at my school, um, you know, coming, being born in a British colony and being cultivated in a emancipation, I'm sorry, independence mindset, um, I fully knew myself as Barbadian. And um, growing up in a majority culture, I was pretty solid in my identity. And that all changed when I moved here. Um, And so I always looked for Barbados and everything that I did. And the first time I saw it, actually, Lucy, was um, one of our required readings was The Witch of Blackbird Pond. 
And that was the first time I made a connection um, for myself. Um, while everybody saw me as black, I saw myself as Barbadian. So anytime I saw Barbados, it meant a lot to me. And so I think um, I also came at a very historic time in America. It was 1975. My first year at school was 1976. And as you know, that was the American Bicentennial. And so I got all wrapped up in the festivities for that at my school. However, you know, another year later, Roots comes on TV and then I go, okay, <laughs> what is this all about? Um, so I think that there's some very specific events that got me interested in learning more. And when my identity was challenged, it kind of made me want to know more about, you know, where I came from and who we are and, you know, why people see me as a color and not as I saw myself at that time as a Barbadian. And then why did Roots resonate so much with me? Because I had no idea about our past and our history. So one thing led to the next and um, my interest in history just kept growing. And that brought us brought me to today, asking you if you would please engage with this topic and just with our history in general, yes. When you talk about uh, the history of Barbados, uh, talk a little bit about uh, Barbados and its relationship with the British Empire. So really good, good question. So Barbados was thought to be uninhabited when the British came, according to um, that historical record. And so the British Empire um, claimed Barbados as a colony with the intention of growing raw materials, tobacco, cotton, um, and they tried that at first in around 1625. And that wasn't as successful as sugar. Um, once sugar was introduced, and it was believed it was introduced by Brazilians, um, sugar just turned out to be a perfect crop for our climate. And so the British colonists embarked on the production of sugar. And at, they, they immediately, um, now England was late to the game of um, the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. um, they had not been engaged, but once sugar became successful, um, they saw the opportunity to expand sugar using the labor of enslaved Africans. And so Barbados evolved as a commercial enterprise with um, sugar being very prosperous and um, made England, um, English planters very wealthy. Um, and that continued for a very long time. Barbados remained the only island to be under British rule for the entire time of its existence um, up to 1966 when the island became independent. So we have a very, I was born a British subject, if you will, um, but three years later we gained independence and from then on I was cultivated in a very nationalistic um, mindset. You know, earlier I mentioned that we have many residents that are of West Indian descent. Fiona, you're Jamaican American. So when we talk about uh, why uh, West Indians came to our state, you know, I live up in Suffield, there are still many farms. And in the summers, uh, there are farm workers, uh, generations from Jamaica that still come up here. Uh, absolutely. Yesterday, I was uh, in Enfield, uh, right next door at the Emancipation Day celebrations. Um, there, they bust in over 300 um, farm workers who are here to help with the um, tobacco um, crop, and that is the origin 
of um, West Indians here. They first started coming in 1943 when under British rule, uh, the um, Jamaican um, government um, negotiated uh, with uh, the US government to help to fulfill the labor shortages after World War II. So that those are, those are the origins and I'm happy to elaborate. <laughs> well, tell me about your family story, Fiona. Uh, I came here in um, 1986. I'm a beneficiary of uh, IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act. So uh, I, I tell everyone that I, I give thanks to Ronald Reagan and family <laughs> reunification for getting me here. And my family came to New Jersey and I stayed there uh, through college. And my Connecticut story is that I, I came to Connecticut to go to grad school at uh, Yale, and other than one little tiny um, diversion to uh, Michigan, uh, where I discovered Lake Effect Snow, I, I, I came right back, and <laughs> here I am. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you. Uh, when we think about the West Indian community, I think about the Hartford area, Bloomfield, Windsor. So how many uh, people of West Indian descent live in our state, Fiona? Uh, so we have over um, 80,000 of West Indian um, descent, but the majority of the population uh, lives in um, lives in in the greater Hartford um, region. There are over um, 36,000 uh, Jamaicans here uh, spe specifically, and we've been making gains um, in the census. So since 2010, Jamaicans are the largest foreign born population in the state, and I don't think a lot of people I don't think a lot of people know that because it, Jamaicans have only been around um, in since the 1940s. There were only under 300 folks here um, in the 1950s, or at least that the census could count. And now West Indians are the largest foreign-born population, and we're and we're growing. And it's exactly this early program that brought West Indians here that served that process of chain migration as folks came season after season and, and found Connecticut really attractive, right? Most of the time when we think about West Indians, we think about New York or we think about Florida, but there's something particular about um, Connecticut that a lot of folks that I've interviewed have said is that Connecticut reminds them of home. It's small. Um, for a long time, it was rural. There was a lot of land, a lot of space. And in terms of the kind of um, home ownership dreams folks had and the kind of backyards they wanted, a lot of people uh, found Connecticut really attractive for that reason. You're hearing Fiona Vernal here on Where We Live, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at UConn, as well as Sandra Tate Eady. Uh, she's a historian, a Caribbean American. As we talk about West Indian history uh, in the context of August 1st, uh, Emancipation Day, uh, in many English-speaking countries in the Caribbean, if you're of West Indian descent, we'd love to hear from you as well. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at where we live. And so, Sandra, when you pitched us this show, you know, there's so much attention on Juneteenth, and many Americans understand uh, what this day uh, is, and now that it's a federal holiday, but talk a little bit about Emancipation Day and, and why you feel it's necessary that people need to know about this as well. Yes, so thank you for, for saying that. I think in general, um, we need to 
appreciate our differences and embrace our similarities. And to me, Juneteenth and West Indian emancipation, there, there are a lot of similarities there. We come from a very similar experience. And if we are aware of these experiences, then we can have better communication. We can have, you know, more unified um, discussions and interactions. So Emancipation Day in the Caribbean was spurred by um, the British Empire. They looked at all their possessions, which at the time in, um, in 1833 um, were slave empires, slave colonies, and the British government decided to end slavery in its possessions in 1833 with the Slavery Abolition Act. And that would go into effect August 1st, 1834. But alas, it wasn't quite freedom. What it basically did in the colonies was to free children ages six and under six years old. But the adults then were asked to remain in a condition called the apprenticeship or the apprentice period for an additional four years for their full freedom in 1838, August 1st. And so in 1834, emancipation was basically, you know, not something that the planters embraced, because let's be clear, the powers that be um, were not at all um, wanting to release their enslaved labor. It was the power of the British government that made that happen. And so the planters were in, in the islands were not at all, you know, happy about it. So there was no celebration um, in 1834. In fact, the enslaved um, also um, had a subdued attitude about it because they realized this isn't really freedom. We don't have control over our time. Um, the planters basically gave them a quarter of their time back, um, kept three quarters of it and informed that, them that in order to remain on the plantation, you had to give that three quarters of your time to the plantation. So there, you know, Barbados in particular being so small, well, people had nowhere to go. So they had no choice but to remain on during the apprenticeship period, basically living as they've always lived. So 1834 Abolition Act subdued, not really, you know, something that people felt, you know, could help them um, achieve their emancipation dreams. 1838, August 1st was a little different because now the planters, even though um, your labor still was not your own, um, it, it was full freedom. It was everybody then no longer classified legally as enslaved, even if your day-to-day -day living still felt like slavery. So emancipation was gradual in the Caribbean, um, but it was done through a legal process, unlike what happened here with the enslaved who just were not, you know, aware or informed, or if they knew, were not given their freedom when it was due. Emancipation Day then in 1838 was jubilation. It was church services, Thanksgiving, pageantry. Um, on the part of the, the colonial government, the local colonial government, um, they would have done a parade with the militia. They would have, um, the, the, the people of color, um, the, the former enslaved and their descendants would have attended, um, you know, parties and a plantation, um, they would have then embraced the idea of emancipation, except that um, they still did not have control over their labor.
in some cases, places like Jamaica, um, um, Guyana, where there's more land area, the enslaved had a better opportunity to realize the promise of emancipation. Um, there was more land. They could farm their own um, produce and they could trade that produce. Whereas in the land starved islands like Barbados or Antigua, the, the smaller land area, that promise was deferred. In fact, in Barbados, emancipation ushered in a period of um, a period of poverty, if you will, right? And it remained for a very long time. Um, the wages were kept the same exact as they were during enslaved, um, after emancipation. In Barbados, there was no increase in wages. In 1937, there was a labor rebellion to force planters then to, to just remove the stipulation so that people could um, finally achieve that, that promise that emancipation had offered. So we're still struggling for that today. Um, it, it's a never ending battle. I think um, being the economic minority sometimes, it really makes it difficult to see all those promises come to the fore. And we'll talk more about that coming up, uh, Sandra. I wanted to bring into the conversation Dexter Gabriel, who's also an assistant professor of history and Africana studies at UConn. Uh, Dexter, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. It's been interesting to hear uh, Sandra talk about the history of Barbados and what was happening around emancipation and then in the years after. Uh, but I wanted you to, to talk a little bit more about New England's connection uh, to the West Indies uh, before emancipation and how this region profited from slavery. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, what's interesting about uh, New England is that uh, when I teach a lot of students, a lot of students are actually surprised to hear that New England had a role uh, within slavery or the slave trade. I think our larger histories often of New England, uh, the thoughts we often have that of abolitionism and anti-slavery, um, which certainly does come later. But uh, very early on um, from the colonial era and even after, uh, places, like, places like New England uh, participated in the slave trade itself. Uh, I think most people are probably most aware with uh, places such as Providence and elsewhere that directly were involved in the trade. But I suppose what's lesser known are places like Connecticut, uh, where the trade itself is so dynamic that people begin engaging in the various um, support roles of the trade. And so for instance, whenever we think of the slave trade, it was not only the shipment of human beings, but it was a larger uh, business opportunity for many people um, who is going to uh, build the ships uh, for that trade, who is going to supply the food uh, for enslaved populations to eat in the West Indies. And you see places like Connecticut become the source for this in many ways. And so uh, in Connecticut uh, during the colonial era and, and again uh, after, what we see is a trade that develops based around providing much of the sustenance uh, that many of these um, British Caribbean colonies would need because after all, Connecticut at the time early on is also a British colony. And so there's a trade there. Um, some of this trade is in food, some of this trade is in cattle. Uh, we, you have to remember that these uh, various colonies, particularly uh, the island of Barbados, uh, this becomes a key place that um, Connecticut uh, ends up in trade with, the colony, is that these places were growing sugar and using up so much land to grow sugar, in fact, they don't really 
have much land left over to grow their own crops and sustenance. And so a trade develops and merchants uh, see an opportunity here for Connecticut, which has its farmland, which where it is growing food to provide that food to these basic slave societies. And over time, as I said, this will expand to also bringing cattle uh, to places like Barbados. Um, and of course, as this develops, there's also the there's also reverse trade in bringing back slaves. And so what we see is that uh, this trade develops to provide um, these material goods and other things to the Caribbean also brings back enslaved people here to Connecticut and to parts of New England. Um, and of course, Connecticut is also uh, profiting because the other things they get in that trade, of course, are sugar's uh, byproduct, molasses, which is very instrumental in creating rum and, uh, and distilled liquors. And so we see uh, Connecticut in many ways profiting from the trade, if not directly, also indirectly, right? Both are being, both are happening. You're listening to Where We Live here on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about West Indian history and the context of Emancipation Day, a holiday around August 1st in English-speaking Caribbean countries that commemorates the end of slavery. We know Connecticut has many residents of West Indian descent. Are you one of them? How do you or your family mark Emancipation Day? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're learning about Emancipation Day, August 1st, marked in many English-speaking Caribbean countries. My guest today on Zoom, Sandra Tate Eady. She's a Connecticut resident, originally from Barbados, and a historian. Also with us, Fiona Vernal, Associate Professor of History and Africana Studies at UConn and Jamaican-American. And Dexter Gabriel, also with the Assistant Professor of History in the same department at UConn. And Dexter, I, I forgot to ask, you've got a connection to the Caribbean. Uh, yes. Um, uh, both my parents are from uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, well, Trinidad to be specifically, but the larger republic is the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. And uh, like, um, like many Trinidadians, uh, they're actually from somewhere else. Trinidad is an interesting 
almost like an immigrant community for the Caribbean and elsewhere. And so um, on my father's side, one generation previous, uh, we are from Karakou, a small Grenadian island. And on my mother's side, uh, about two generations or so, um, there are ties to Barbados, of course, <laughs> to be mentioned again, as well as St. Vincent. And so, um, yeah, those are my ties. And uh, we I was born in New York City, but um, I ended up being sent back to live in Trinidad for six or seven years with my grandparents. Uh, from there, I, I returned to New York where there was this very large and vibrant uh, West Indian community and family. Uh, and then my parents picked up and moved us to Houston, Texas, <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> where there was not <laughs> a very large uh, West Indian community, or at least one that we were aware of. I think we were just, Houston is very large and we were all spread out. Um, and so most of my upbringing, um, I had a home culture that was this uh, Caribbean culture, but my larger culture, most of my friends and everyone were African-Americans, that was my larger culture. and. My parents also embraced this. And so uh, though we knew about Emancipation Day, uh, my parents, my family, we heartily celebrated Juneteenth in Texas, of course, uh, every year. And so I've, I think I've always had that dual upbringing um, a, within a rich African-American tradition while also having this uh, Caribbean tradition. Um, and yeah, so Texas is where I grew up, where I lived most of my life. And I I ended up um, moving back to New York when I was later as an adult, and I didn't come to Connecticut until um, 2016. I uh, came here for work at UConn and uh, uh, met Fiona, who <laughs> who introduced me to some of the very interesting uh, Caribbean history that takes place in this state and uh, in this city, Hartford. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're talking about uh, this history uh, in the context of Emancipation Day and Dexter, because you're a professor of history. Let's talk about uh, more in depth about the the events that led up to uh, the uh, abolition of slavery uh, in the British Empire, specifically the sustained resistance by enslaved people in places like Barbados and Jamaica. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think it, it's always interesting because um, Certainly, Emancipation Day uh, to Britain is, is remembered with this sense of pride, but the history is a lot more complicated. Um, Britain uh, has to go through, uh, goes through a very lengthy process <laughs> before they decide to, uh, to, to do away with slavery. In fact, um, for a very long time, they think they can perhaps ameliorate uh, slavery, perhaps make slavery, quote unquote, more humane in many ways. Um, and it is not until it is really enslaved people in places like Barbados, uh, in places like Guyana, um, especially a revolt that takes place uh, in late 1831 into early 1832 in Jamaica, a massive slave revolt that forces in many ways um, Britain's hand in saying that slavery itself uh, is untenable and we don't think we can control this and it may not be as productive. And so we see this move to end slavery. But I think, you know, I think as we see, as, as we heard, as Sandra just pointed out, uh, freedom uh, did not mean uh, liberty in many ways or equality. In fact, uh, as the, there were deliberations about um, what freedom should mean in these former colonies, uh, it was made quite certain that these former colonies had to remain profitable and that profit had to, re had to result from labor. And so even in freedom, um, the labor of formerly enslaved people was seen as something to be controlled. 
and I think, you know, when we, so when we think about abolition in many ways, I think the state of affairs that Sandra talks about that comes about in the post-emancipation period is directly related to how emancipation itself uh, ended up coming to fruition in those colonies. Can you talk more about the Haitian Revolution and you know the events that made this very pivotal when we think about uh, the abolition of slavery? Yeah, I mean, uh, the former French colony of Saint-Domingue, the uh, one considered the most wealthy colony uh, in the French Empire within the uh, slave trading Atlantic, um, a massive slave revolt takes there uh, takes place there that will end up lasting 13 years, right? So this is a massive uh, rebellion that eventually becomes a revolution that draws in other empires, the British Empire, the Spanish, and the French all vying for this. And it is not until uh, 1804 that the Haitian revolutionaries end up defeating uh, Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, veteran troops uh, to found their own uh their own republic, and they renamed this place Haiti, which they say, which which they claim is a word that uh, comes from the by then uh, long disappeared indigenous population of the island. So it's interesting they rename it after this indigenous name, um, and they become the the second republic in the Western Hemisphere after the United States. In some ways, a sister state to the United States and the first black republic. And then the honor also of being the first uh, nation to end slavery. That honor is often given to Britain, which is bizarre uh, because Britain, of course, doesn't uh, issue its decree until 1833, doesn't take effect until 1804. But before this, uh, Haiti outlawed slavery uh, forever on its island. And so they they claim that distinction. Mm. Uh, Fiona Vernal, we know uh, Haiti in the news uh, today because of the serious political crisis. And we think about, uh, you know, the the factors, uh, the way that uh, the U.S. has um, um, dealt with Haiti over the years and thinking about this uh, from the time of, of the Haitian Revolution, uh, these ideas of while they were free from slavery, uh, the types of policies that have impacted Haiti and, and other Caribbean nations. Can you talk about that? You know, one of the most important things that, that Dexter um, point, pointed out is, is just how important Haiti was as a symbol um, of freedom and the U.S. has had a very complicated relationship with that symbolism because it does not bode well for its own um, enslaved um, population to have um, freedom in the heart in the heart of slavery. And so, for a very long time, on the one hand, the U.S. wants to maintain its trade relationships um, with Haiti, wants to maintain a robust trade relationship with um, Haiti because it's a very wealthy sugar producing um, producing area. And yet it also wants to control the what freedom means um, for those folks. And so the this has led to several generations of interventions um, in Haiti, it's sort of interesting um, with the assassination of the um, president that U.S. intervention was asked for. And I'm glad that the president demurred on that because that would have been, um, you know, that would have led down a, a very long historical road um, where the U.S. has not had the best of intentions um, for Haiti and has not necessarily supported 
Haiti um, in its um, economic success and has actually done quite a bit to undermine um, Haiti's economic independence over the years. Sandra Tate-Edie, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation. Again, uh, Sandra is a Connecticut resident, originally from Barbados, and she's a historian and genealogist. Uh, uh, Sandra, talk through um, some of your response when we think about the events that led to uh, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire and in the years since, uh, the consequences and the impact on the Caribbean people. Um, Good question. Barbados, of course, had a revolt in 1816 that um, oftentimes, I'm a teacher, and oftentimes when we learn about revolts, whether it's Nat Turner or um, General Bussa in Barbados case, or Sam Sharp, we often hear the word unsuccessful associated with those particular events. And so I would argue that in fact, um, they are successful if in fact they create discomfort for the power power class. Um, So the fact that I got hung um, for rebelling um, is okay, and it's successful if it created any movement at all towards freedom for the masses. And I I think that one of the things that um, I, as a teacher, and and also going back to my days in school, um, I want to hear these empowering stories of rebellion that happened in Haiti and that happened in Jamaica with Sam Sharp and happened in Barbados. But I want to hear it from a more um, from a positive perspective in terms of how it ushered in a, a different attitude in the the, the, the power class, the oppressors. Um, <clears throat> um, I wanted to also and go back to the issue of emancipation. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, um, Dexter, um, and I'm happy that your family celebrated emancipation. Um, that was not something that was in our consciousness when abolition came. Um, the day of the actual emancipation in 1838, sure, there was some jubilee, but we might note that the British government never made um, emancipation day a holiday. And it's holidays that help to cement these events in our consciousness. And so as a result, um, Emancipation Day didn't become a holiday until the government became independent. Um, And so I think that's an important fact because Emancipation Day and Juneteenth um, are things that are now beginning to surface. And we ourselves are finding ourselves needing to learn more about these events to get them into our consciousness and into the consciousness of the masses. Can I sure, uh, go ahead, Fiona. You know, one of the things that I wanted um, to point out, sort of in the same vein um, as Sandra, um, in, in terms of the unsung, you know, sort of heroes of all of these um, rebellions is that, you know, we're talking about the specific day and specific holidays, but there's so many other ways in which people made space and um, claimed their space. And so in the ways in which they could marry, in the way that they could um, become a part of a become a part of a Christian um, community, in the way that they could take control for some of the first time over what happens to their children as parents, right? Because as enslaved people, they did not have control over their marriages, over their their families. And so I want to make sure that we emphasize some of the smaller ways and not necessarily the grand um, rebellions and public holidays, some of the smaller ways in which people 
made space, took space, and claimed space as they were transitioning um, to freedom. They they were very well aware that freedom wasn't free and that they had to fight for it, but they also fought for it in their personal space, in their religious, in their religious space. And I think it's really important to underscore those, those victories. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Ray. Do you want to respond? Yeah, I think, yeah, thank you. Um, I think what Fiona is saying is so exceptionally important. And it even it even speaks to this notion of how freedom is going to be celebrated and remembered. And so I, I should first point out uh, to Sandra, um, I should first point out that when I say my family uh, celebrated uh, Emancipation Day, this wasn't until the mid to late 80s, because I think in many places, um, Emancipation Day had become abandoned in, in parts of the Caribbean, British Caribbean. And so uh, it wasn't until 1985, I believe, that uh, Trinidad officially um, decided to recognize Emancipation Day again. And so um, it was until then that it was something that my family would discuss. Um, but that also speaks to that also speaks to some of those uh, tensions that occurred after emancipation happened in the in 1834, and especially after 1838 with the end of the apprenticeship system. Um, how emancipation was to be celebrated became this contentious uh, and challenge, this contentious act between, pardon me, I should say contested, between the formerly enslaved and free people and clergy and others in the colonial state who had different ideas of how that should be done. For many uh, free people, for example, uh, they wanted to celebrate their emancipation. They wanted to do something performative. Um, Some wanted to throw parties. Uh, Some wanted to have parades or what have you. Um, The colonial state and clergy, however, uh, wanted many enslaved people to to perform this very, uh, I should say, quietly, um, to have processionals from churches, right, uh, to make certain they attended church services because they thought that any celebration that was too performative that the free people want might spell disorder. And all they wanted to make certain of in these colonies was that order uh, was maintained even with the end of slavery. And so this became uh, something that we see uh, this contest between these two forces and who's going to win out. And many, many formerly enslaved people, many free people begin finding their own ways to celebrate. Some may decide that they're going to celebrate more uh, during the Christmas time. Uh, in places like Trinidad, enslaved people may decide to bring about ideas of emancipation and speak about freedom during Caribbean Carnival, which is a, you know, a pre-Lenten celebration in February. And so we see people finding different ways to celebrate this. Um, so it's not surprising that actually after about the 1880s in many places in these colonies, uh, we see Emancipation Day sort of peter out and sort of disappear um, in part because the colonial state no longer sees it as advantageous to itself and beneficial. Uh, and many of the formerly enslaved and free people find different ways uh, to celebrate this. So in many of these colonies, Um, Much as we're seeing in the United States with the rediscovery of Emancipation Days, uh, we see a rediscovery of many of these emancipation celebrations, at least on a national level in these colonies, uh, really not happening until uh, the modern era, the 80s and 90s and so forth. 
You're hearing Dexter Gabriel here on Where We Live, Assistant Professor of History and Africana Studies at UConn. His colleague Fiona Vernol is also here. And Sandra Tate-Edy, a Connecticut resident, originally from Barbados. We'll continue talking with them after the break and, and learning more about uh, the family stories in our state and how community um, evol- evolved and spread uh, throughout Connecticut. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, employers want employees to come back to the office, but after 16 months of remote work, not everyone is anxious to return to cubicles and endless coffee. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk to about how employers are navigating back to work. Are you back in the office or soon will be? We want to hear from you, that conversation tomorrow. Now, we know Connecticut has a sizable West Indian population, and today we're learning about some important history about the English-speaking Caribbean with our guest, Sandra Tate-Edy. Also, Fiona Vernal is here and Dexter Gabriel. Uh, they're both uh, professors of history at UConn. Uh, Fiona, you know, earlier we were just talking about um, some of the history, and I wanted to learn more about the connections and how communities spread in our state when we think about the migration here. Uh, So as we were uh, saying um, earlier, West Indians were brought here to make up uh, for um, the shortage of labor because of World War II, and so they first came in um, in 1943, and despite our small state, Lucy, if you will believe it, over um, 8,000 uh, West Indians descended um, descended on the on the the region, and the Shea Tobacco Growers Association um, eventually uh, were the ones who were really instrumental in making sure that that specific wartime um, program um, became a peacetime a peacetime program after the war was over and so they kept on inviting West Indian men and it is and it is men not women Uh, the program does include women now but for for many decades it was primarily West Indian men and they came here and they harvested um, shade tobacco specifically that program is a really fundamental part of the American agricultural system, because while they focused on shade tobacco here in Connecticut, they're also um, picking um, apples and they're also um, working in sugarcane, especially um, in Florida. And as the program grows, they're also going into um, nurseries and greenhouses. They're going into um, sod that you put down on the on the um, golf course, and it's turning into almost year round um, year round labor. And so that is the core 
of the men who used to come here. Now that program is from the 1940s. And then with the liberalization of um, immigration policies after um, 1965, that created more opportunities for other West Indian migrants to um, come here as well as migrants from um, across across the world. Mm -hmm. So um, Asian, uh, from Asia, from Africa, but, it, but this was critical um, for the Caribbean because that was one of the first moments in the 1960s when families are able to come and you're able to reunify um, West Indian families. Mm -hmm. There's a significant proportion of West Indian women who come at that time to work in domestic service. And between the men who were here in the 1940s and the women who were starting to come in the 19, um, 1960s, you have a small core of a West Indian community. Uh, when you're in Suffield and Enfield um, and you're thinking about settling in um, Connecticut and you're thinking about settling in a, in a big city, um, Hartford is it. Hartford is that big beacon <laughs> uh, for uh, West Indians. And when they arrived here, a lot of folks had a familiarity uh, with Hartford because there was a huge fanfare. They used to have welcome cricket games to open up the season, as well as farewell cricket games to open the season. Uh, the Council of Churches used to help to bus the men um, into Hartford for um, services, as well as um, various choral groups that would um, perform um, in the in the region. And so I would I call it reconnaissance. You know, these opportunities to come into Hartford to play cricket, to spend some time at the churches to get to know the local African-American community gave West Indians a sense of what their lives might be like if, if and when they settled in Hartford. And finally, one of the other um, important details is that there are African-Americans who are also working in um, shade tobacco and there are lots of African-American um, women who are sewing the tobacco leaves together and a lot of West Indian men met some of those African-American women and that West Indian man and African-American um, woman becomes the first cohort of that of that West Indian American of that West Indian American um, American family that began to um, create our, our, our growing our burgeoning uh, community here in, in the greater Hartford region and in the state. There's so much a strong culture uh, within the, the Hartford region. We think about uh, people of West Indian descent, Fiona. Uh, Aaliyah writes that she's a U.S. citizen with Jamaican heritage. She's enjoying this history lesson on Caribbean Americans. And she says folks should check out the Taste of the Caribbean and Jerk Festival in Hartford coming up. Did you want to talk about that, Fiona? I know West Indian Social Club, uh, an important institution. Yes, these very same uh, migrants you know, we're able to pool their money. And if you can imagine how significant uh, that is um, in the 1940s and in the 1960s, they were able to pool their money and put down um, a down payment for um, a house over on Barber Street. It was a multi-family house and they bought it as their first um, clubhouse and they renovated it because they really wanted a space that was a space that was theirs. A lot of the West Indian men who first came, you know, they talk about going around Hartford and feeling this wonderful welcome, of course, from the officials, from from the governor, from the 
from the mayor, from the farmers, from the State Tobacco Growers Association. But unfortunately, that welcome, um, you know, was not a common ex experience in some of the places they were socializing. So they would go into bars in Hartford, for example, to try to um, have a drink and relax and socialize. And sometimes the bartenders would say, you know, because they were black, they were going to break all of the glasses that the black people used to drink. And you can imagine only one or two of those kinds of experiences of social exclusion would lead people to want to create a space of their own. And so that was that was the origin of the West Indian Social Club in 1950. And then as the West Indian islands got its um, independence um, with, um, with Jamaica, Trinidad um, follows, Barbados, et cetera, um, the idea for West Indian independence celebration um, set in. And from 1962, we've been having West Indian celebrations um, that starts off um, with West Indian Week and culminates in the um, parade. So this uh, this year it will be um, in Bushnell Park and it will be on the 14th. And there's an entire week of activities at the West Indian Social Club and the Taste of Hartford where you can come and enjoy uh, our um, jerk, our jerk festival <laughs> um, will be on uh, Saturday. That all sounds uh, lovely. Uh, Sandra, I wanted to end with you uh, because earlier when you said you moved here, you didn't quite feel seen. How do you feel today uh, as part of, of this uh, uh, community and as we're learning more about the history of the Caribbean? Sandra, are you there? Thank you for that question. The work of um, understanding and the work of helping us to see each other is in programs like this. It is in classrooms and university um, courses. I think it's really important that we we let the public know that we we built America together. Um, Connecticut towns like Wethersfield and Middletown and um, those along the river, New London, these were port cities that were built with the labor um, and, and the profits from the Caribbean slavery, which was um, on the backs of people like my ancestors. And I think that when we come to understand our shared history, that things may improve, but we need to do a better job, I think, in our schools and do a better job even within our own families talking about, you know, all of our contributions and, and understanding that we were there too. We Caribbean people, we people of African descent were there too and that we helped to build us. Sandra Tate Eady, a pleasure to hear you today on our show. Thank you for your time. Also Fiona Vernal and Dexter Gabriel from the History and Africana Studies uh, Department at UConn. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff and Maisie Carvalho. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. <laughs>